Hey guys, I'm Abigail Meller, and welcome back to Generation Invincible, a podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health and social problems facing our nation. Ah yes, just another casual week of historical significance, not only for the United States, but for the whole world. Don't worry, I don't want to talk about Brexit and its implications for the possibility of Trump actually having a chance in the general election. I could probably do a whole episode on the politics alone of the events that went on this week, but I'm going to do my best to focus on the public health and health policy significance of recent events. Before I go on, I have to point out that this is one of the first times that in my adult life I was proud of something related to politics that came out of Georgia, aka my home state. Representative John Lewis is one of the most amazing, inspirational, intelligent, and moving people you will ever hear speak. John Lewis made little noise in his young life. Oh wait, just kidding. He was the youngest member of the big six civil rights leaders and chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during what was arguably the most tumultuous years of the civil rights movement. Also, he was one of the original Freedom Riders, and the first of whom to be assaulted, all the ripe old age of 21. Today, Representative John Lewis represents Georgia's 5th Congressional District. Lewis is arguably one of the most liberal members of the House and one of the most liberal congressmen ever to represent a district in the Deep South. And just this week, he came into headlines again for leading a sit-in of the House with Massachusetts Representative Catherine Clark. No stranger to sit-ins, Lewis's goal for this one was to force House Speaker Paul Ryan to allow a vote on gun safety legislation in the aftermath of the Pulse nightclub shooting. We must remove the blinders. The time for silence and patience is long gone. We are calling on the leadership of the House to bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Give us a vote. Let us vote. We came here to do our job. We came here to work. Representative Mark Walker, Republican of North Carolina, posted on Twitter, quote, calling this a sit-in is a disgrace to Woolworths, end quote, referring to a 1960 sit-in at a whites-only lunch counter at the department store in Greensboro, North Carolina, that drew attention to segregation. Paul Ryan called this nothing more than a publicity stunt. But what do Americans think about gun control, this thing that the House refuses to recognize and work on? The Pew Research Center is a nonpartisan think tank that provides information on social issues, public opinion, and demographic trends in the United States. For years, this organization has collected information across the United States on opinions regarding gun rights and gun control. The public continues to overwhelmingly support making private gun sales and sales at gun shows subject to background checks, as of a study conducted by Pew in July of 2015. Currently, 85% of Americans, including large majorities of Democrats, 88%, and Republicans, 79%, favor expanded background checks, little changed from May of 2013. Nearly 8 in 10 favor laws to prevent people with mental illness from purchasing guns, 70% back the creation of a federal database to track all gun sales, while a smaller majority, but still a majority at 57%, supports a ban on assault-style weapons. You are fully entitled and allowed to believe in your personal right to bear arms. I personally just believe more in the right to personal safety. It is undeniably a civil right. The combination of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments that cover due process and the requirement for the government to have a warrant before arresting you guarantee by law that you have the right to personal safety. The Second Amendment, on the other hand, is a funny thing. 
Up until 1977, when the National Rifle Association changed management and started to work on gun rights, there was no question that the Second Amendment only applied to organized militias. Before then, the NRA focused mainly on less political topics like gun safety. The Second Amendment reads, quote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. With the new leadership of the NRA, who were much farther right-leaning Republicans, came a new interpretation of the Second Amendment that gave individuals the right to bear arms. Now, this is a bit ironic because traditionally, conservative people believe in a concept called originalism, which basically means that the Constitution was fixed when it was ratified. On the other hand, it's a liberal idea that the Constitution is a living document, one that changes with the values of the country. However, gun rights are arguably one of the best examples of the Constitution as a living document because it was and still is a completely new and unprecedented interpretation of the Second Amendment. This was officially determined to be a legitimate interpretation of the Constitution in 2008 in the court case District of Columbia v. Heller, where the Supreme Court determined that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess a firearm for traditionally lawful purposes. Public safety is a critical and essential role of government and society. There is no one law that you can find that says we have the right to public safety, but it's an entire construction of laws and bodies. The Department of Defense, Department of Justice, Food and Drug Administration, local police, local and federal prosecutors that together make a variety of violations to our bodies and our property crimes that allows us to protect these things through government action and private action because it is such a comprehensive idea and fundamental to government. Now that that's said and done, we're going to spend the rest of this episode having a little chat about why gun violence is a public health issue, some statistics about gun violence and what they mean, and finally, how a public health approach to solving gun violence in our country is beneficial for all. Saddle up, people! According to the American Public Health Association, gun violence needs to be approached from a public health standpoint because the issue is complex and rooted in our culture. But why do the APHA and other major public health and medical groups consider gun violence and gun control to be a public health issue? First of all, guns are second only to automobile crashes as a cause of death for young people ages 1 to 24. This trend is expected to increase without intervention. Data released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that gun deaths overall have increased for the fourth year in a row to 33,636 in 2013. This rise is primarily due to a 2.5% increase in suicide by guns across all ages. In 2010, the economic impact of firearm-related incidents was more than $174 billion in both healthcare and societal costs. These numbers do not include the long-term physical and psychological toll that gun-related incidents have on those who survive shootings or whose friends or family members are injured or killed by guns. For example, take a moment to imagine the horrific experience of Jason Sheets, who just this week in his home in Fulshire, Texas, watched his wife shoot and kill their two daughters on his birthday after a family argument. The daughters were 22 and 17 years old. The mother was an outspoken gun rights advocate, having said on Facebook that, quote, it would be horribly tragic if my ability to protect myself or my family were to be taken away, but that's exactly what Democrats are determined to do by banning semi-automatic handguns, end quote. 
Through this tragic event, we should see that gun control is not black and white, not clearly Republican or Democrat as it has been portrayed. It's about protecting the right to live. A study released last year by the Violence Policy Center used FBI data and Bureau of Justice data to find that there were 258 justifiable homicides involving civilians using firearms in 2012, compared with 8,342 murders by gun. Even if a criminal isn't shot down, the study found that civilians rarely use guns to protect themselves. Intended victims of property crimes engaged in self-protective behavior with a firearm only 0.1% of the times they were targeted. Actually, according to the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, not only are the claims that guns are used millions of times per year for self-defense not true, but actually guns are used more often to intimidate than in actual self-defense. So while it can be argued that personal firearms are necessary for individual protection, it's important to analyze the pros and cons of individual gun possession and whether or not guns actually protect people from harm or if people fight to keep the right to guns because of other reasons, like concern of the infringement of their personal rights by the government. The goal here, according to an article by the executive director of the American Public Health Association, is not to disrespect the Second Amendment or to ban guns for illegal gun owners. Similar to how automobile safety campaigns are not about reducing car ownership or destroying the automobile industry. The goal is to use a public health approach to make guns and their use as safe as possible and to keep them out of the hands of the people who legally should not have them. An approach that makes the gun safer, the environment with guns safer, and people safer with their guns can save thousands of lives every year. So what does a public health-based solution to gun violence entail? The same way that public health programs have targeted polio, cancer from smoking, and car accidents. Supporters, including doctors and medical associations, say that designating gun violence, which they define to include homicides, suicides, and injuries, as a public health issue will save lives. Some examples of public health measures to curb gun violence include expanding government research for data on gun violence and, yes, you guessed it, expanded background checks for gun purchases. Currently, the CDC is banned from conducting any studies that use injury prevention and control funds for anything that can be used to advocate or promote gun control, controlled by a measure known as the Dickey Amendment, named for Arkansas Republican Congressman Jay Dickey. While President Obama lifted this ban through executive order years ago, the funding is still not available for this type of research. Sort of. Basically, the CDC could do research on gun violence without it explicitly advocating for gun control, but they've received clear messages that the whole topic is off-limits. For example, the year after the Dickey Amendment passed in 1997, lawmakers redirected all of the money previously earmarked by the CDC for gun violence research to the study of traumatic brain injury. This was perceived as a crystal-clear message to stay away. In April, a coalition of 141 medical organizations sent a letter to four top members of the House and Senate Appropriations Committees urging them to reinstate funding for gun violence research at the CDC. The letter identifies what it says are common-sense priorities that require more study, including accidental shootings, firearm studies, and the impact of state policies, like background checks and safe storage laws, on the rate of firearms-related deaths. The letter cites three examples of questions that could be 
easily answered if there were increased research on gun violence. They reference how to protect toddlers from accidentally firing a gun, what are the most effective ways to prevent gun-related suicides, and what is the impact of current state policies on gun injuries and deaths. All of these touch on details covering safe storage, mental illness, background checks, and public education, among other topics related to gun violence. They also cite past public health problems that have been solved by increased research, such as sudden infant death syndrome, car safety by way of having rear-facing car seats for children, and car accidents that were prevented by research rather than having to take people off the road. According to the letter, quote, Public health uniquely brings together a comprehensive approach connecting the complex factors that result in violence and injuries, including clinical, social, criminal, mental health, and environmental factors, end quote. And further stating that this approach would be endlessly useful towards decreasing injury and death stemming from gun violence. Before we finish, I want to bring up one last bit of news that came up this week in the House. House Republicans, after six years of threatening to repeal and replace Obamacare, have finally come out with a plan for health care reform. In a 37-page proposal from House Speaker Paul Ryan and GOP committee chairman, Republicans said they would strike the law in its entirety, but then reinstate a couple of its requirements, such as a ban on insurance companies dropping consumers just because they get sick. According to Paul Ryan, this plan is a real plan in black and white right here. Not so fast, Polly. This plan was presented without a cost estimate or legislative language. Read, not ready at all. Some of the pieces of the plan include familiar ideas like high-risk pools and health savings accounts. Additionally, House Republicans want to gradually increase the eligibility age for Medicare, which currently is now 65. Starting in 2020, the Medicare age would rise along with the eligibility age for full Social Security benefits, eventually reaching 67. The health proposal would transform Medicare into a fully competitive market-based model known as premium support. The traditional fee-for-service Medicare program would compete directly with private plans. Furthermore, to quote, help lower the cost of coverage, House Republicans said they would cap the value of tax-free benefits, but the cap would theoretically only affect the most generous plans because it would be really high. The law currently stipulates that employees do not have to pay federal income tax on contributions that employers make to their health insurance. House Republicans said that this has encouraged people to select more expensive coverage, consequently driving up premiums. In my opinion, this isn't about choosing expensive coverage. It's about having the ability to afford more comprehensive and inclusive healthcare coverage. The Affordable Care Act tries to discourage inefficient insurance plans as well through a Cadillac tax on high-cost employer-sponsored coverage, a tax that was recently delayed until 2020. According to James P. Gelfan, Senior Vice President of the ERISA Industry Committee, a trade association for large employers, quote, this would be a new tax on benefits, on working families, and could eventually threaten the employer-sponsored health insurance that so many Americans enjoy. The last piece I want to talk about is a change in age rating restrictions. Currently under the Affordable Care Act, insurers generally cannot charge older Americans more than three times 
what they charge younger people, assuming other factors are equal. Republicans said that this has caused higher premiums for younger and healthier patients. So basically what they want to do is charge older adults a lot more for their health care. Let me tell you why this is not only problematic, but potentially catastrophic for our aging population. The issue here is that many older Americans can't pay for their health care without insurance or discounts, etc. Because realistically, it does go up as you get older because as your body ages, you get more ailments. Also, generally speaking, most older Americans don't make as much money after they retire, and many live on solely Social Security and or pensions, which in the long run just isn't enough money. Without the age rating restrictions as they are, older Americans will essentially not be able to pay for their health care, meaning that a growing portion of our population will not be able to afford health care as we have a large and increasing aging population, which is basically made up of baby boomers. I think we already have enough problems with Americans not being able to afford their essential health care without the added complications. This was just only a few pieces of the proposed health care reform from House Republicans. I believe an even more detailed plan will be released soon, possibly this week. So keep your ears open and let me know if you have any questions. To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out Generation Invincible's new Tumblr page. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Until next time, to quote Aziz Ansari in his New York Times article about why he is afraid for his life because of Donald Trump, quote, One way to decrease the risk of terrorism is clear. Keep military-grade weaponry out of the hands of mentally unstable people, those with a history of violence, and those on FBI watch lists. But, despite sit-ins and filibusters, our lawmakers are failing us on this front and choose instead to side with the National Rifle Association. Suspected terrorists can buy assault rifles, but we're still carrying tiny bottles of shampoo to the airport.